Hi there and welcome to Naturally Recovering Autism. I am your host, Kieran Thomas, and I wanna thank you so much for being here and being a proactive parent and getting the resources that you need to let your child live their most fulfilling and independent life possible. When my own son was diagnosed with autism, I was told to drug him and try behavioral therapies and there was nothing else that we could do for him but manage his symptoms the rest of his life. But I didn't wanna do that. Fortunately, my background in craniosacral therapy Look, now 30 years, let me know that the brain can and does heal, but I didn't know that much about autism. What I did know is that I didn't want to just mask the symptoms with dangerous drugs. I wanted to find the causes and work with them naturally. And fast forward, it took me a decade and a lot of time and effort, but today my son is no longer diagnosable with autism after being told it could not happen. So I'm here to share with you valuable resources to save you the time and some of the expense that I had to spend to figure it out and to help you let your child lead to their best results possible. Every child's level of recovery is different, but we know that children who couldn't sleep through the night are sleeping now through the night and happily. Their immune systems are now strong where they were once sick all the time. Children who were nonverbal and their parents were told they could never speak are now speaking. Children who were getting D's and F's in school are getting A's and B's. And those that were so anxious all the time and couldn't sit still and, and were uncomfortable in their own bodies are now calm and happy and relaxed. And they're leading fulfilling and independent lives with friends. This is what we want for our kids. So I'm here to share the resources with you so that you can get the best results for your child the best possible. And you can start that right now with my free download of this top seven foods to eliminate beginning today of the top foods that are the most inflammatory and toxic that are contributing to those physical and behavioral symptoms of autism that your child is having. They're making his life uncomfortable. So you can get that right now at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash seven foods and feel free to share that with anybody you know who would be interested. And I will also link to it in today's show notes. There's of course a lot more than diet, but this is something you could start doing today that will begin to reduce those symptoms. And I'm happy to share everything I can with you. So right now, let's dive into today's episode. Hi there and welcome back. Thank you again so much for being here and being such a great parent and doing all that you are doing for your child with autism. And I'm here to share special resources with you to help guide you on this journey and support you because having lived this journey myself, I understand the challenges involved. And that is why I'm here for you to support you. And one of the subjects that I haven't covered, which is surprising, but I hadn't really covered this before, that is so, so important for parents, especially a parent with a special needs child, is how do I keep my child with special needs supported after I'm gone? And today we're going to be talking about special needs trusts and versus a will and power of attorney and various things to know about to set your child up so that whether you're still here but unable to care for them or once you're gone, how you can help make sure that they're cared for. And so I have a special guest with us today. I'm very happy to, to introduce uh, Blake Baxter. Uh, Blake is an attorney and works with some special needs trusts as, as well. And so I'm going to go ahead and, um, and let Blake kind of just go over all of these things for you because he's the expert. And uh, that's why he uh, he's um, 
been sharing his time with us here today, and I really appreciate it. So thank you so much, Blake, for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Um, so I guess I'll start by saying um, that uh, I'm an attorney. I'm licensed here in California. Uh, special needs trusts are interesting in that they um, sort of have a lot of overlap with state-specific law and federal law. And so um, I would advise you, you know, after... Um, you know, after this presentation, um, if you kind of have specific questions to, you know, where you are living, your locale, um, it, it might be a good idea to, you know, look for somebody to set up a, a legal consultation if you want some specific guidance. Uh, but this is good generic information that I think is general, generally applicable. And um, I guess a great starting point is sort of to talk a little bit about what is a trust? How is it different from a will? And then launch into the special needs specifics. So um, uh, the basic definition of a trust is that it's a it's a contract to control property. Um, and usually it's for some specific benefit or objective. And the person it's benefiting is usually called the beneficiary. Okay. Um, now, a special needs trust is... Uh, also a contract to control property, but for the specific purpose of ensuring that the trust assets are not considered as, as um, you know, available resources to somebody who is receiving some sort of a benefit or, or who's a, a, in some sort of a government program. Um, now, uh, to a contrast with that would be uh, a will or sometimes what's called a last will and testament. So a lot of people, will is maybe a little bit more of a familiar term. Uh, it's it's kind of displayed a lot in Hollywood and in the books that we read. And the idea is that a will is a testamentary document. That means it's a document where somebody is going to be spelling out what they want to happen with their assets when they die. Now, um, I think a lot of you are in California, and so it, uh, it probably bears mentioning that in California, if if all that you do is a will, uh, that will is going to be filed with a court and it's going to go through a probate proceeding. A probate case will be opened and the court is basically, basically going to authorize the transfer of your assets to the beneficiaries you name in your will. Um, this is something in California that a lot of people seek to avoid because probating a will is a very slow process and uh, it is, is also can be quite costly. The fees in California are statutory and it's a, it's a sliding percentage scale based on the gross estate. So we're not talking about your home that you have $200,000 equity and that's worth a million dollars. Probate court fees are based on the fair market value of that home um, in, in this example. So um what I would say is this, um, at minimum, sure, everybody should have a will and have their wishes spelled out. Um, but doing a, a trust is probably the best way to transfer assets privately to your loved ones or whoever you want your beneficiaries to be. Now, uh, what's nice is um, nowadays, a lot of attorneys are including standby uh, special needs trust provisions or supplemental needs trust provisions in there. And what that means is some people know that they have a loved one that they would like some assets to go to. Um, and, and in other instances, maybe there isn't a family member that with a disability uh, yet. 
but of course, you know, people are sort of planning ahead for down the line. So we might not just be talking about your immediate children. Um, you know, you might have a child who predeceases you who has a child of their own that has a disability. So um, when you are talking about just your generic, you know, revocable living trust is what we call kind of a regular trust or a family trust. Um, it's a good idea to uh, maybe bring this up with the attorney that's preparing your documents to say, you know, or will, will we be able to include some provisions, some clauses, uh, you know, to ensure that assets are sort of uh, portioned out and set aside in case there is a beneficiary with a special need. So that's one way that special needs trusts get created is there's sort of a subtrust that gets formed underneath a family trust that, you know, mom and dad create. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, again, if you have an existing trust, this might be a great point to go and look back through your, you know, table of contents and see when it comes to the distribution provisions and who the assets are going to, do you have any specifics in there about what is to happen with assets if there is a child or a grandchild or some other beneficiary that has a disability that's on, you know, a part of a government program. Uh, the idea with this all is that, um, you know, we want to sort of maximize the benefit for the individual with a special need um, without having them, you know, booted out of their their programs and benefits that they're receiving. So I'd say that's uh, that's kind of the zoomed out bird's eye view of um, really of how a lot of special needs trusts come into being. Now, the other way that special needs trusts uh, get created is they can absolutely be created as a uh, standalone trust, a standalone document that that a person uh, makes and, and creates separate uh, while they're living. So some people do their trust and then their assets, you know, at their death, eventually are going to be passed on to beneficiaries. And then sometimes the special needs trust sort of gets formed there. Or you can form a special needs trust now, and uh, there's a few there's a few different types I think that we should probably touch on. Um, but before I launch into that, uh, I think it would be beneficial, especially to this audience, to talk a little bit, have a little bit of a public benefits overview. So um, this all is uh, you know kind of very uh, personal to me um, because my longest standing childhood friend of 37 years happens to be uh, an individual with special needs who receives various uh, types of, of government aid. Um, and so, uh, you know, when, I, when I'm talking about this topic, I'm, I'm oftentimes thinking of this best friend of mine, Taylor. So um, when we're talking about these public benefits that we're trying to preserve, um, I usually, you know, you guys kind of probably know generically what we're talking about, welfare, medical benefits, food stamps, housing subsidies, you know, even um, utilities, assistance with paying utility bills, right? There's all kinds. The two buckets I usually like to put those in are um, basically money benefits and medical benefits. So um, just by way of an overview, uh, some of the, the money benefits that we're talking about here would be supplemental security income or SSI. This is kind of commonly uh, known or talked about as like welfare right? It's a needs-based program. Um, and then social security disability income or SSDI 
is uh, is not really a needs based program. It's more of an entitlement program that's sort of based on a person's uh, you know work history. Um, and then, of course, you know, I was talking about my friend Taylor, right? Childhood disability benefits uh, would be another one that's sort of in this money, the bucket of of money public benefits. Um, let me just get this switch back over here. Um, now, on the way of medical benefits, um, what we're talking about here is, uh, you know, Medicaid, uh, which is a needs-based program, and Medicare, which is a little bit more of an entitlement program, right? Age 65 or older, or for somebody who is younger than 65 but is disabled and has been receiving SSDI income for, you know, two plus years. Um, so those are kind of our two buckets, right? We we want to we want to protect these these powerful lifelong benefits, the money benefits, and the medical. So um, how do we do that? Um, because some of them, again, they're well, the way that people are eligible and qualified for these. Obviously, you know, disability is kind of the first uh, the first thing on the checklist. But uh, beyond that, right, they're going to be seeing what available resources that person has to provide for them. And so. Um, what I would say is, again, to reiterate the sort of the definition of the special needs trust, uh, it's basically a trust that's going to ensure that uh, the assets of the trust are not considered uh, as available resources in determining if you know a disabled person, what they have available to them. So um, the, the first, I guess the starting point, when we're talking about the three main types of special needs trust, you have first party special needs trust, third party special needs trust, and pooled special needs trusts. And um, I'm j I'll probably just breeze over the first party special needs trust because this is sort of a different, um, well, I want to make that assumption, but uh, basically whenever you see, you know, in the news, some big, uh, you know, personal injury case or some big settlement that comes out, um, a lot of times the proceeds from those types of, of legal cases are going to go into a first party special needs trust. It's basically coming from the injured party or maybe now the newly disabled party into a trust. They're, they're also, these first party special needs trusts are also sometimes called uh, a self-settled special needs trust or a Medicaid payback trust. And the idea is that um, basically uh, the money goes in and these trusts have to be uh, irrevocable which means it's sort of like uh, set in stone and locked up at signing. Um, and, and basically, these trusts require uh, a provision in there that says that, um, that Medicaid has to be uh, paid back. So usually as language, it says that, um, you know, the state will receive the remainder upon the termination of the trust. And so uh, this, is, this is pretty stringent. Um, as far as the terminology and there's kind of standard language that will that will be used in these uh, first party special needs trusts. But so that's sort of uh, a smaller percentage of the population that would need that. It's more niche. Now, the, when we talk about a special needs or a supplemental needs trust, most people, you know, unknowingly are talking about a third party uh, supplemental needs trust. Um, the reason I'll probably use the terminology supplemental needs as opposed to special needs is kind of to make that differentiation between the first party and the third party trust that I'm I'm kind of distinguishing here. So with a third party special needs trust, I'll usually call it a third party supplemental needs trust. Um, but basically these are great. They're, they're sort of very flexible. Uh, they don't have to be um, 
irrevocable, like the first party. They can be revocable and and amendable and sort of uh, more malleable, which is which is kind of nice, more similar to like a family trust, which sometimes requires changes or updating. Um, so there's no Medicaid payback provision that's required in in a third party special needs trust. Um, it, it's basically uh, established by somebody other than the beneficiary. And so a lot of times what we'll see as is in my friends in uh, scenario, right, is you have a parent or a grandparent or some loved one creating the third party. That's who the third party is, right? They're creating this special supplemental needs trust for the individual they have in mind that has the disability. Um, now, one requirement that this has that's similar to a first party special needs trust is you do need to have an independent trustee. So in other words, that disabled individual cannot be the administrative person that's sort of signing off on everything, right? They have to sort of be separate and independent. So you have a different person, which is the trustee or the administrative person. Um, now, the trustee needs to have complete control um, of the trust. And, and basically, most attorneys out there are going to draft it that way so that there's no question. Um, because basically, you know, worst case scenario is if a trust is done wrong, um, then the benefits you're trying to protect can, you know, it can kind of implode and, and basically be deemed invalid. But um, anyways, that, that shouldn't be uh, really any need. But these third party trusts are great because any family or friends can contribute assets into it. And they're sort of, you know, held in this bucket of this supplemental needs trust for the benefit of the disabled individual. So multiple um, people can put into that, not just one person or anybody. Who that's right. To that's right. That's so in other words, it can uh, receive contributions from a variety of sources. Um, if there was, again, some sort of an injury uh, claim or settlement, you know, you would want that in its own separate first party special needs trust bucket. But yeah, when we're talking about a, a third party, so sometimes they're funded by a family trust, which then parcel, you know, portions off a, a piece for the special needs trust. Other times people will just create it and fund it while they're still living. And uh, we talked about an overseer and an executor because what if a child is incapable of being there, you know, of of being in control of their own own trust? And I know right. there also we'll talk, I'm sure about- So yeah, that's a great point. So to talks. distinguish a little bit there, executor is usually the terminology that goes with a will the last will and testament, trustee or successor trustee is the terminology we usually use with all types of trusts, whether it's a family trust or a special needs trust. Um, and so that really, uh, if anything, a lot of consideration should be given to who is on that list. Usually people will sort of, uh, you know, if they have three children, one of them is disabled, you know, it might be that they're listing adult children as their executor or as their successor trustee, and that's fine. But usually, uh, you know, if there's, any question about, uh, you know, disability, you you might want to um, not have that person's name on the list because they would be a beneficiary of, of the special needs trust. Um, I get this question a lot. You know, can my, you know, adult son? He's just a lay person. Can he be a, a trustee? And the answer is yes. A lot of people name uh, will name a lay person to be a trustee. That's that's normal. They are. Um, oftentimes going to maybe rely on certain professional advice or counsel or services uh, if they feel, you know, they're unable to do something uh, that that the trust, you know, spells out for them. 
Um, I'm a, I've become a bigger and bigger fan of, of what are called professional trustees or private fiduciaries, um, not to be confused with a corporate trustee. A lot of you guys probably have heard that, you know, banks can serve as a corporate trustee to a trust and that's fine. It's really only, uh, it's more common maybe with a very, very, very large estate. But for the most part, um, you can find amazing people wherever you live. In some states, they have separate licensing and you know bonding requirements for these private fiduciaries. But basically, you can uh, locate these individuals. A lot of times, they, they'll have other designations, like uh, one that I, I use a lot here in San Diego County happens to be a CPA. But his main line of work is trustee and fiduciary work. And so people who don't have a loved one close by or, or you know, people that don't have children or a spouse or these types of scenarios, uh, you can name a person who's licensed and bonded to, to do this work, which is to carry out the wishes of your trust. So that's a key word I want you to save, private fiduciary. Um, they're all over and their their fee is is very reasonable compared to a corporate trustee like a bank. And it's uh, also very reasonable and oftentimes a lot less than an attorney. Um, and so it's a, it's a fraction of the cost, but they do excellent work and they have uh, uh, accountability. And um, and I just think they're great. And so, how, does a, how would a parent go about, or a person go about finding one? You just look online for- Yeah, there, so there, you know, depending on which state or area you're in, I'm not sure which terminology will be the most most common. I would say in California, uh, private fiduciary is probably going to be the dominant search term that you'd want, you know, if you wanted to see if there was any in your county, um, you know, you could search for private fiduciary in San Diego. Um, now, uh, professional trustee is also used in California. And uh, so that would probably produce some search results as well. Do you uh, want them to be local or do, do they, can they be, you know, at distance if you find somebody like, does it matter much? Yeah. I mean, you could theoretically use somebody uh, that was not geographically close, but I'd say what would be important might be to use somebody that is at least um, uh, within the same state at minimum of where uh, this disabled individual receiving these government benefits is is located. So the situs of the trust, right? That's sort of like the uh, the geographic locale. So, um, but yes, because so, again, like I said in the beginning, there's a lot of overlap between sort of some of the state programs and federal programs, and um, it would make the most sense probably to use a professional fiduciary that's in the state that you're in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a excellent question. So I appreciate you asking that. Um, I think that it, another uh, thing worth mentioning in um, just kind of in these third-party special needs trusts, um, there's usually uh, an entire you know provision or article dedicated to the distribution provisions or the distribution standards, right? Or the the payment of funds out of the trust to that individual. Now, this is maybe sort of the most important part of a special needs trust. Because you want that's the part you want to make sure is done right so that they don't lose any government benefits. Um, and so that's where a professional fiduciary would be great. You kind of had so maybe a person you know names their adult children as as their uh, successor trustees. Um, but maybe uh, you use a professional for the special needs trust just because there's a little bit more red tape uh, and a lot of kind of nitpicky rules that a person would want to you know adhere to so that so that it's effective. 
So uh, even if you're capable, it's a good idea to have a private fiduciary sort of lined up. So yeah, that I, can I, I'm a fan it. of, uh, you know, or you, maybe you don't need to, uh, you know, have that person named. I like the idea of maybe even having the meeting before they're signed into the trust, right? Of, of you know, consulting with and getting to know the fiduciary you're thinking you're going to name to see if you guys jive and everything. And, uh, and then ultimately, um, you know, you could be like, hey, we're going to sign this trust and you're uh, going to be listed as, you know, as you, in your fiduciary capacity as the successor trustee and sort of getting all parties on board initially. That's ideal. Um, but if, if you if you haven't gotten that far, I would at minimum recommend that you maybe review the language in your trust to see how a trustee, if a trustee is given power to designate another trustee. Now, if that's written in there, that can just solve so many issues or problems down the road. So maybe you do name your adult children, uh, but at the time of your trust administration, after you're, you're gone, um, you know they might be in a different place where they're just unable to 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 do it or to tackle that project. And so it would be very important to look in there and see if there's language allowing uh, a trustee who's in office, somebody who's named to, you know, maybe it's adult child number one, to be able to say, you know what, this is getting complex, especially with the special needs trust provisions. Um, I'm going to designate and appoint a new trustee who happens to be a professional fiduciary. And again, they're, they're licensed uh, here where we live in California. And then there's also like an incapacity clause. Like if somebody is a trustee, but then they become, right. you know, incapable, whether they are passed away or they're still alive, but they also they're they have dementia or yeah. something happens and they're not capable of doing it. So in that right. case, this is what you were talking about is naming. Yeah, that's a great point. So um, a lot of these trusts will have a provision that says, um, and I, I'm I'm just talking about trusts and uh, you know like a, a general family trust, right? Uh, ultimately you know, mom and dad are probably in control while they're living. They're sort of the, the trustors or the grantors that have created this instrument. And uh, they're probably also the signing party. They're the trustees while they're living in most cases. And naturally, uh, you know, when one of those individuals dies, the successor on the list will then step in as the trustee, as the administrative person. Uh, but you bring up an interesting point, which is that uh, you should also check to make sure if you have a trust done already, that your trust has provisions. What happens if mom or dad doesn't die? What if they are still living, but are unable to manage their affairs? And usually there will be a provision that says, these successor trustees on this list will step into office in the event of death or incapacity. Um, or sometimes there's somebody is, is aging and they're in their mid nineties and they just kind of sometimes want to step down as trustee or name one of those adult children is a co-trustee to work alongside them while they're both living. Mm -hmm. But yes, you'll, you'll want to make sure that you have in the trust uh, uh, something there to, to allow for the trustees to step into office if you're incapacitated. Now, the sister document to this would, would be uh, a power of attorney document. There's various powers that you can give to other people while you're living, uh, whether it's for managing financial affairs or related to healthcare and medical decisions, right? Financial power of attorney or medical power of attorney. So uh, in various states, you know, these might have different names, but most commonly 
The financial power of attorney would be called a durable power of attorney. And the medical power of attorney is usually in what's called a healthcare directive. And that's basically a combination of who you designate as medical power of attorney, along with living will wishes. And um, that's basically related to end of life decisions, pulling the plug, um, you know, all of that stuff. So um, yeah, powers of attorney, just like in the beginning when I said avoiding probate should be paramount, especially in California where it's very slow and costly to the heirs, to the beneficiaries. Um, the other thing we really want to avoid is court conservatorships. That's where the person is not dead. They're living, but they're unable to manage their affairs due to any number of, of uh, you know, incapacity scenarios, right? A lot of times, like you, I heard you reference kind of diseases of the mind, right? Dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, you know, Huntington's, wh whatever it is. Um, these, these are, it's really important to get these documents in place before somebody gets into that situation, because then they will lack the capacity to contract. And that is the legal requirement for somebody to be able to turn over powers to another individual. They need to have the capacity to contract. And so you want to get it before somebody is showing signs of, of aging, of dementia, Alzheimer's or whatever. Um, so yeah, those power of attorney documents, in other words, are actually separate from a family trust and separate from a special needs trust. But uh, I, yeah, I would advise that um, if you don't have any legal documents in place, I strongly recommend that you look, start looking into it, get it done while you're thinking about it. Um, my own father just died uh, last year, very suddenly uh, at age 65, very young nowadays, um, had not, uh, he actually was in possession of planning documents, believe it or not, he had not yet signed and notarized them. So oh. they were of no legal effect. They were basically oh. null and void. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, my my new theory is like, if it's on your mind, get it done. Yeah. Just do it. Absolutely. And then you can, uh, you'll be able to sleep well at night. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, when it's something ending up in probate and it's years before anything gets settled and it's costly and then you know, people who need the funds can't get to them. And, and yeah, it's really, so a lot of financial institutions actually um, might require a, a durable power of attorney for your finances. Is is that right? Yeah, that's right. So um, usually with the, that durable power of attorney, there's going to be uh, several pages. Well, I should qualify the statement by saying in California, and in a lot of states, there is a statutory sort of template general durable power of attorney that has this little checklist. And you can kind of initial like power over real estate, you know, power over bank accounts, power over retirement accounts. Um, and you can initial the powers you want to give. Um, I usually advise against doing those. They they oftentimes lack a lot of very important powers that might be related to things like um, gifting and um and Medicare, Medicaid planning and special needs type stuff. Mm -hmm. There's, um, so uh, yeah, I, I attorney prepared, uh, that's, yeah, I would say that the statutory California form is a great little Band-Aid, um, but I've also seen it put people in a little bit of a pickle from time to time. So an attorney drafted durable power of attorney uh, would be ideal. It's often a lot longer than that short, like two or three page st state form. Uh, but that's because it has a lot more specifics related to things like um, I was talking about uh, gift spe specifics related to gifting and taxes and planning, um, 
And so uh, that's why doing an, having an attorney drafted one would be a good idea. And yeah. we're talking about a trust attorney. It, it does, is a trust attorney the same as an estate attorney or is there another? Yeah, so as far as terminology goes, this would probably a, a, apply pretty broadly across the country. Usually trust attorneys, estate planning attorneys, estate attorneys, those are pretty synonymous, pretty much one and the same. Um, now, what you will find in specific areas is that there are um, attorneys who have chosen to focus their practices entirely on uh, special needs planning. Mm. And so that might be another thing that uh, you could Google in your area to see if there are any uh, special needs um, attorney, special needs planning attorneys, you know, in your in your city. And um, and some people do it exclusively and they, they don't even get involved with uh, probate cases or they don't even get involved with uh, with doing, um, you know, other types of trusts. So um, those people, depending on your jurisdiction, may have an extra special designation for special needs planning. And um, that's kind of a nice segue, actually, into uh, the, the kind of the last two sort of types of, of, of special needs trusts or bullet or a, a planning, excuse me. Um, there is a pooled special needs trust, which is almost like a cross between a 401k and a special needs trust. That's um, good. It's a good option for smaller trusts because there's not as uh, large of a, a big of an expense for doing a special needs trust on your own. Um, the the disabled party doesn't really receive like a booklet or a binder with their own trust. It's more so that they're joining into an existing pooled trust and then they have an account within that trust. Um, so that can be kind of a useful tool in some scenarios. Another thing that I wanna make you guys aware of are what are called ABLE accounts, A-B-L-E. And, um, and basically these are kind of a newer invention, but. Uh, they're essentially tax advantage savings accounts for um, for disabled individuals and their families. Um, the idea being that you know you can sort of put some money away and and earn interest on it and grow it without having to uh, pay taxes um, on the income earned. So um, those would be great. You know, if you have an existing financial advisor and you have a child or grandchild with disabilities. Um, Maybe at your next meeting, you're like, hey, tell me about it, more about ABLE accounts. Um, and, uh, you know, they can get into the specifics of, you know, how much might be contributed by one person in a given tax year. Um, there's not really a, a, a tax benefit for adding to one. Um, there's not a tax write-off uh, or a deduction, in other words, but the benefit is in the growth. So almost kind of similar to what, you know, or like a Roth IRA sort of. Um but yeah, so so again, recapping, right? Sort of four things you might want to look at depending on your scenario. Uh, first party special needs trust, if if you sort of do have that disability, maybe resulting from like a large uh, personal injury scenario. Uh, the most common, right? Ninety nine percent of the time, we're talking about a third party supplemental needs trust. Um, and then there are these pooled special needs trusts, which sometimes might be specific to a type of disability or specific to a geographic locale. But uh, same thing, regardless of what jurisdiction or state you're in, you could sort of search it and see if there's a, a, a special needs pooled trust that's uh, you know kind of where you're at to learn more about it. And then the ABLE accounts, right? Financial advisor, um, you, can, you can learn more about ABLE accounts. 
And well, I'm wondering too, the difference, so it's, we want to be clear, everybody understands the difference between a will and a trust. Yeah. And the trust also, you know, as we've been really covering well, and if somebody has a, a will, it spells out where you want specific items. So you can have something called a pour over will that could actually feed into the trust. Is there a reason why somebody would want both or is it best to mostly stick to the trust? Yeah, that's a good question. So this will be a little bit more um, state specific as far as like what is best. But what I'll say generally is this, um, you what you're referring to as far as like listing out specifics uh, is a lot oftentimes what we'll call a, a, you know, a personal property memorandum, or maybe a specific bequests uh, list. And, and what people sometimes do is they will, you know, you can put specific items of personal property, like one vehicle to one specific grandchild or, you know, the piano to somebody or sometimes even a specific cash gift. Like I'd like $5,000 cash to go to my uh, housekeeper that's been cleaning my home for, you know, the last 40 years. Uh, so those go are oftentimes best placed on a, a, a personal property memorandum. It's, it's an addendum really okay. to, uh, to a will or to a trust, depending on the state that you're in. Right. It doesn't have to be an addendum, but a lot of times that's the format that it takes. You've got the signature page that ends the will or that ends the trust. And then this extra list that's that lists those things out. The other thing you referred to is uh, the pour over provision in a will. So when you do a family trust, AKA a living trust, um, a lot of times people will do their will at the exact same time. And what they're doing, um, you know, a lot of people's trusts, for the most part might be kind of simple and say, Hey, when me and dad, you know, when me and uh, mom are gone, we'd like our assets to go to our children equally, right? Simple. Now what the will does a pour over will is going to be a lot shorter than the trust It's going to be kind of a very concise, short and sweet document. The main purpose being that pour over provision that says, uh, you know, if there are any other assets out there that are in my name as an individual, um, my desire, my wish is that those items be transferred or gifted into my trust. So the reason for the pour over is to sort of rescue loose assets from going through a formal probate court proceeding. Is there uh, any because again, would the, be trust, the trust bypasses the formal probate court proceeding. And so you can have a private trust administration with a private transfer of assets without having it go through court. Wills in most jurisdictions uh, are required to be filed uh, with the court in the jurisdiction where the decedent died. So here in San Diego, uh, you know, you have 30 days to uh, submit the will to the court and then it becomes uh, a part of the of the record. Probate cases, it's public record. So your estate and all of your information is sort of out there. So there's this element of privacy that's really nice, uh, mm -hmm. you know, for having a trust too. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like just having a trust alone really could be enough. There doesn't really have to be a will if the trust covers everything and all. Yeah, I mean, no, uh, the will is still important for you to sort of iterate that your desire is for everything to flow through the trust. Okay. Um, and so I, I think in most jurisdictions, your estate planning attorney will do a trust for you. And at the same time, do a will for you as well as those power of attorney documents I was talking about. So mm -hmm. usually it's 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 not so much just the trust, it's sort of a trust package where you're getting the trust document plus all of these other ancillary documents that have specific roles 
to help you efficiently, uh, you know, administer your affairs and your assets while you're living and after you're gone and during incapacity, if that happens. Right. And so to find someone um, like you, and I definitely want to make sure that we give everybody listening your contact information as well. Um, they would want to look up somebody best in their state that it understands their state laws and look up underneath living trusts or special needs trusts, especially if they have a special yeah. needs child and find somebody uh, in the same state, if possible, for where they live. Right, right. So some great resources for finding good attorneys. Um, again, yeah, estate planning attorneys, trust attorneys usually will be able to uh, do special needs trusts and special needs planning. Um, if you wanted, uh, you know, and, and I don't know, speaking to the fees, if somebody that specializes in special needs planning, uh, perhaps their fee would maybe be a little bit higher. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, yes, these these types of attorneys can do the work. And of course, you know, nowadays with uh, with Google and <laughs> social media and everything, it's not hard to find an attorney. Um, I will say that it is nice. Um, sometimes it is nice to have in-person uh, kind of meetings. It doesn't, you know, you can do this work remotely and sort of UPS the documents, you know, to the person uh, to sign and notarize on their own. Um, but working local is great. And a great resource oftentimes will be a, uh, uh, locations bar association. So here uh -huh. in the area, right, we have the San Diego Bar Association, and even more specifically, we have a North County San Diego Bar Association, uh, which I'm a member of. But and then there's state uh, bar associations. And the nice thing about these is is uh, they always have a phone number you can call that has an attorney referral service. And so they sort of just rotate through, you know, estate planning attorneys or special needs planning attorneys on the list. And, um, and you know, uh, usually the members of these associations need to be people who are in good standing with the bar. Um, and so that's just kind of a nice little, um, uh, you know, barrier to make sure you're kind of not, not working with anybody too sketchy, right? Yeah, exactly. And just randomly Googling somebody and popping them out of the internet can sometimes yeah. be dangerous. It's it's nice to get a good referral from somebody you know. That's how That's I true. you, Blake, is my yeah. CPA referred me to you. Yeah. So, you know, having somebody that can refer you is wonderful. You can ask around for CPAs like- CPAs know a lot of trust attorneys wherever you want. You could talk to your accountant. They'll usually have a good connection. Um even uh, I'm thinking people in the real estate world, you know, if you have a, a mm -hmm. realtor you've worked with, a lot of times they know trust attorneys too, because in a lot of these transactions, right, a lot of the assets that we're talking about uh, oftentimes are people's homes uh, or, or other pieces of real estate that they have. And so uh, I know I have close contact with a lot of accountants and real estate professionals, uh, shoot, even insurance professionals. So yeah, those are great resources because again, like you said, right, a word of mouth referral is a very powerful thing. If somebody else has had experience with a person and knows they do good work for a fair price, that's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. And they're trustworthy. And you can so you can feel, you know, secure when you when you work with them as well. Right. Um, so what just into and thank you so much. This has been extremely helpful, Blake. Can you give us uh your contact information as well? How would yeah, you yeah, I'd love to. So my name again is Blake Baxter. Uh my office is in Encinitas, California, which is in North County, San Diego. Um, and my website is www.baxter.law, B-A-X-T-E-R.law. So instead of .com, .law is the new thing. 
Um, my phone number is 760-845-PLAN. That's 760-845-7526. Um, and uh, really, I would say um, there's a contact form on the website. So you can go there and, and basically send me an email through that. And, and then we can, um, you know, kind of pick up email communication or, or phone communication from there. But uh, I'm also, yeah, right downtown. So if there's any other San Diego natives, San Diego locals, uh, you know, come by the office and, and uh, I'd be happy to sit here and meet with you at my desk and uh, learn a little bit more about your family and your assets. And, um, you know, my whole goal is to sort of do good planning so that we can preserve and protect the things that you've worked hard for in life. Right. Absolutely. And protect the ones that we love, especially if they're not capable of taking care of themselves after we're gone or if something happens to us, um, which is a big concern for parents of and, and grandparents of special needs kids. So uh, again, Blake, thank you so much for being here today. I know you're very busy and your time is valuable. So I appreciate you taking your time to do this. And uh, I'm sure that uh, a lot of people will be benefiting from uh, everything that you have shared and hopefully they'll be able to contact you and uh, utilize your services because I personally do recommend Blake. He's been wonderful for us personally in our family. And, um, and I, again, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, have a good one. Thanks, Karen. Right. You take care, everybody. We'll see you next time.